All right, so let's do a uh, let's do a welcome to the show. Okay. So welcome Kate, to second. Oh shit! I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Welcome. Welcome. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let me speak at all. I'll just put you on mute. It's okay. Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. And I'm your host, Colleen Stewart. Nice. Nailed it. Thank you. All right, so the first thing I, I want to say is last week we kept calling them octopi instead of octopuses. It's actually octopuses. I looked it up. Ew, I hate that. Yeah, I didn't really like it either, but... I hate that it's octopuses. Yeah. Ew, I hate saying it. Oh, <laughs> my toes are squinching. Oh. Yeah. I don't like it at all. Do I have to say it? No, I mean, we're done. That episode's over, so. Oh, good. We're all good. Um, God bless. So, Love the story. Hate the octopuses. Yeah. So this week, we're pairing these next two episodes together again, uh, kind of theming them like we did last time, except we're going to tell everybody up front what the, like, what the theme is. We're not going to put bless. any. God bless. I don't have to guess this time. Yeah, Colleen doesn't have to guess. She's She good probably Lord. already knows. This episode, I would say, or these next two episodes would be kind of about body issues i don't want to call them issues because it's kind of putting a negative spin on it but it's about people who are deceiving others um with with their own reasons about kind of who and what they really are mm-hmm. so yes. well this definitely this this one we're about to talk about i mean there's like that's that's deceiving like they go pretty they go, it's like a mulan situation kind of yeah a lot more sexual but that's all right yeah and Do i you. think so we we Colleen and I talked a little bit before the show, and I think we have maybe some slightly differing opinions on the story. But I think we're just going to go ahead and play the story now, and we'll talk about it afterwards and see where we are. Hell yeah! All right. So here is Daniel De Leon reading his story, "Fruit on a Vine." Fruit on a Vine, by Daniel De Leon. An adolescent dwarf eyed me strangely. Do you speak Italian? I asked in Italian, lowering my voice. The dwarf yelled in French for someone in the house. Another dwarf, a female older than the boy, came to the door. Welcome, signore. Her voice cracked and broke in broken Italian. The two dwarves welcomed me into their home, the newly famous Dupuis Chateau. The Dupuis family, headed by Adno and Jeanette, had been running a vineyard from this fairy land for going on 200 years. Adno and Jeanette had two children, 18-year-old Eulalie and 13-year-old Godfrey, the dwarves who had answered the door. The Dupuis females, Jeanette and Eulalie, spoke respectable Italian. As I could not speak their language, they spoke simply. Speaking simply, they seemed so much wiser. At supper, Eulalie poured wine into my glass as she translated her father's words for me. You are drinking Dupuis wine, Adno said. This wine has been in our blood for 200 years. We make it from this very land. With the establishment of trade routes in the Beaujolais region, now they drink our wine in England, France, and Italy. With time, the whole world will be drinking Dupuis. Tell me, are you a good Christian? I have not denied God, I said. My boy, we are but fruit on a vine. The vine is the good Lord above who sprouts us, 
who plucks us according to plan. Wine brings us closer to God, it is true. It also brings us closer to ourselves. It took until now, almost 1,550 years after our Lord turned the water to wine, but the people are just beginning to value the versatility of the vine. We make seven different wines in this vineyard. He handed me a corked glass bottle. The days of shipping wine in barrels are dead, Adno said. We stuff something called cork inside this thing called a bottle, which keeps the wine fresh for the Londoner's lips. Adno offered me supper, but I asked him for work. I had avoided work because it made me think of the madam and what she made me do upon the mattress. Yet I knew that to move past the hurt in my heart, I must confront the source of my pain. We picked grapes in the day. We drank our products in the evening. Most evenings, I climbed the tallest tree in the vineyard and I watched the revelry from the treetop above. The season and the grow dictated our lives. If the weather was poor, or if the pests invaded, we didn't grow, we didn't make wine. At first, I had difficulty interacting with the other pickers. They tried to teach me the differences in male vines and female vines, but I couldn't differentiate the sexes. Walking through the vineyard, they explained what made a good vine or a bad vine. Again, I did no more than shrug. When the pickers discovered that I could stomp grapes without fatigue, they assigned me to stomp in the baskets. I stomped grapes faster than anyone could pick them, dancing with my feet in the fresh-picked fruit. He has women's feet, the pickers used to chuckle, but he stomps like Dionysus himself. The first time I stepped in a basket of grapes, I was hooked, transported, addicted. I felt their skin burst under the weight of my feet, Grape juice spurted like liquid sunshine weaving through my toes. I closed my eyes and let the grape ether take me. We pickers became family. We lived for each other. Privacy is rare in a guest house shared by 50. To maintain my image as a young man, I never changed the clothes that I wore in the vineyard. I bathed in the darkness of night. In my spare time, I read books from Adno's library. Though my French wasn't strong, learning French from Adno's books placed me at home among the pickers. Comfort was important in maintaining the illusion that I packed several inches of power in my trousers. Our simple lifestyle made it easy to hide who I was. We ate, we drank, and we lived by the vine. I found small communities to be more loving and less judging than large cities. The pickers held no expectations for me as a man. My only expectation was to give to the community. Because I was such a great stomper of grapes, the pickers didn't notice that I had no body hair or that I never grew a beard despite not shaving. At times, the pickers even made me think I was a man. They addressed me as a man, referred to me as a man, and included me in after-supper rituals with men. Only in moments that I shared with Gilda did I feel confused about gender. Born in Copenhagen, Gilda had been living in the guest house for nearly a year. As Gilda and I were both transplant pickers, members of supposedly opposite genders, and two young people of marital age, 
the pickers arranged for she and I to be married. An elder picker, Jean-Baptiste, promoted my wedding to Gilda as the glory of harvesting season. The wedding became a community affair. They would hold our wedding come the season's end. We were to be the stars of Harvest Festival. Drunk before supper, his thin mustache beaded with wine, Jean-Baptiste grabbed my collar. The cellar is yours when you want it. He slipped a key into my shirt pocket. Take Gilda down there tonight. Thank you, Jean-Baptiste, I said, turning away. Jean-Baptiste called me back for a word. Take a moment to enjoy yourself, boy. Young love is the love that defines us. Gilda is delightfully fertile. After men had drunk themselves into that sweet good night, after mothers nursed their babies using rags dipped in the day's cabernet, I led Gilda by the hand into the cellar. Gilda was beautiful in the way that there is beauty to be found in every creature if you look close enough. We kissed for hours. I had never kissed anybody for so long and so completely that we sampled every movement that the other's tongue could make. We never spoke. She had no wish to do more than kiss, which I preferred because she never saw my body. Each night, we kissed in the silence of the cellar. I opened the spigot of a white oak barrel and shared wine with Gilda. Our lips locked like jigsaw pieces. Gilda was an expert. She sampled each wine, pouring purple streams into my open mouth, then sucking the wine from my tongue tip, our kissing maturing along with the grape. My nightly goal was to get Gilda drunk. If she somehow placed her hand upon my body, she may forget the brush of my feminine skin. I always had a keen understanding of men, as I listened to those men that visited the brothel. Yet I never knew men as well as I did when I became accepted as a man. Men shook my hand. They spoke with me as an equal. They didn't second-guess my ideas. Yet biology ensured that I was not a man. With our impending marriage, it was unavoidable that Gilda would uncover my anatomy. A week before the wedding, I took Gilda to the cellar for yet another round of nightly kissing. I opened the spigot. Wine flowed from the barrel. I leaned with my lips, but she stopped me. Let's take a walk, she said. I feel like they watch us down here. Nervously, I followed. We must talk, she said as we walked through the vineyard. The moonlight glimmered off the grapes. We're not getting married next week. You don't have to worry. I began to speak in my lowered male voice, but Gilda put her fingers to my lips. I know you're a woman. You don't kiss like a man, and I've kissed many men in my life. She placed her hand over my heart as if to settle her suspicion. I struggled to find work in Copenhagen. When my father died, my mother had no money for food. I walked the streets to feed my mother and my sister. I can see it in your eyes that you're moved by my story, but you mustn't feel pain for my sake. Gilda paused to breathe, tears leaking from her eyes. Silence roams the vineyard. Gilda whispered, There are these people in Copenhagen. They call themselves Lutherans, disbelievers in our Catholic Church. 
When the Lutherans discovered me selling my body, they dragged me to the square and they beat me. With the whole city watching, they bound me and beat me. I've surprised you. You disapprove of me. I see it in your face. Not at all, I said, still masking my voice. I wanted so badly to hug her and to tell her I felt infinitely lost inside my body, but I settled for telling her what nearly everyone who ever met me had already known. I used to be a working girl, too. I know this from your kissing. That is why I trust you. She lifted my cap. I held her. They banished me, she said. That's why I came here. I'm going back to Copenhagen in the morning. I need to know that someone is feeding my sister. I need to know she hasn't sacrificed what I have sacrificed. I hugged Gilda in the vineyard. She withdrew. If I'm recognized in Copenhagen, I will be severely punished, maybe killed. My friend, Ida Brueghel, came back after they banished her. The Lutherans put her in a flour sack and sunk her. Another girl, Lisa Lat von Vischer, a banished whore who came back to the city, received a punishment worse than death. They tied her hands behind her back. They listed her sins, and they tacked the list between her shoulder blades. They dragged her to a rock in the middle of a river, placed her naked body in a cage, and submerged her three times. They call this the whore's baptism. You won't be found, I said in the feminine voice I was born with, placing a hand on her shoulder. Actually, I was relieved when I saw you were a woman. All we did was kiss, and it was lovely. A boyfriend wants it again and again. He wants it so much you give it till he can't get it up. Then he still wants it, so you have to work to help him even though you're tired and you don't want it in the first place. At least in our line of work, a John leaves when he's done. <sighs> Gilda gave a snort and a chuckle. We lay on the ground cozying between the endless rows of grapes, our gazes penetrating the night. Clouds drifted like tide, the sky a sea I could dive into. A star sparkled, and I wondered whether that star was like me, crying out for cosmic help, drowning in the sea-like sky. My soul became heavy, but our talk became light, comparing a whore's life from two different countries. We laughed about how rich Johns will boast of their prestigious educations, but they seemed to know the least about life. I told her how I used humor as a tool to keep my customers calm, but now I used it to try and stay sane. Before the sun rose and the pickers took their baskets, I fixed my cap and said goodbye to Gilda. If I don't make it, then I'm done. There's nowhere left for me to go. You'll make it, I said. But if I don't? If you don't, then I promise I'll be waiting right here. I may not have anything to offer but a hug, but I promise you that should you need it. We watched the moonlight glitter off the leaves in the breeze. Why did you do it? She asked me. 
Why did I pretend to be a man? Why did you leave? Why did you come out here? I mean, I think I know it was that look, I interrupted. The one I got from every John that had me on the mattress just before he turned around to leave. I know the one. Like your body became his possession. But it did, I said. It never happened in the act, but afterward, they'd look at me, and I belonged to them. My body was no longer mine. I thought, if I could look at somebody like that, maybe I could feel human again. You never did that to me, Gilda said. Nobody here gives that look. I couldn't tear open that scar. When the pickers hit the fields, they found me in the highest treetop. They assumed I had deflowered Gilda. Several pickers cheered and rooted, as men tend to do in groups. I climbed down the tree. They smiled, awaiting my story. Gilda's gone, I said. The wedding's cancelled. We hosted Harvest Festival at season's end. Though there was no wedding, the spirit of the festival was merry. We ate, we drank, we made mischief and mayhem, we laughed, we cried, we sang, we danced and bathed in barrels of wine. We played games and we cared for our children. The festival lasted about three weeks. It preceded a three-year drought. For three years, the land gave us nothing. We went through the motions of the grove, planting rows, pruning vines, weaving baskets, mending barrels, all of it for plain superstition. The grapes never sprouted from earth. The air was dry, the earth cracked, the sun scorched, and rains were brief. The pickers played sad music, trying to move the sky to tears. Cry, Jean-Baptiste said. Sadness is important to explore. Your tears may help move the sky. I knew sadness. I still couldn't cry. For three years, the guest house was quiet at night. Adno and Jeanette sent Godfrey to study at a university. Eulalie came down with a fever in winter. She passed away shortly thereafter. We held no weddings. We birthed no babies. Our family had become barren. Several times, the feudalists tried to buy the vineyard. Their offers were low. They claimed the land to be infertile. Yet Adno Dupuis was not for sale. No one else can give the world such wine as we will give, he declared. This land is our God-given duty. We continued work without result. Still, there was a sense in which the land and the wine would somehow return just to save us. One afternoon, nearly three years after the last grapes sprouted in the Beaujolais region, I was carrying a pail of water through the fields when I spotted a familiar figure. As she came closer, I recognized Gilda. A look of absence on her face and a shawl over her head. Gilda cried when the two of us locked eyes. I ran to her and hugged her. Her tears soaked my shoulder. Gilda, I said stupidly. Tell me good news. She cried for several minutes. She lifted her face from my shoulder and unwrapped the shawl from her head. 
Her hair, once lustrous and flowing, had been shaved. Her ears had been cut from her head. I couldn't cry. I felt tears that weren't there. Oh, Gilta, I said, though my words would never reach her. I hugged her. It was all I could do. She said nothing. She knew that truth cannot be spoken, only lived. We embrace two broken souls in a desolate vineyard, two strangers in an isolating world. I tried to escort her into the guest house, but she refused to walk any further. Gilda only came for her hug. She kissed me one last time, and then she walked away forever. Another beautiful soul had been vanquished. Grapes once again grew from the vineyard. The sun shone, Godfrey returned from university. We produced our famous wine in the heart of Beaujolais. My spirit aged when I saw Gilda. Even stomping grapes, at one time my greatest passion began to seem somehow mundane. In truth, Dupuy wine doesn't need me. As my hair has grown, I've seen the pickers send me quizzical looks. I am now certain who I am, yet I still hide. Often, I think about Gilda. I long for her fate, to be plucked from this unseasonable vine. Daniel is a writer and musician from Chicago. His work has been nominated for Best of the Net and appears or is forthcoming in Lowestoft Chronicle, Yellow Chair Review, Five on the Fifth, and Vine Leaves Literary Journal, among others. For further reading, visit DeLeonCreation.com, that's D-E-L-E-O-N-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N.com, or follow DeLeonCreation on Twitter. So I kind of wanted to start with just why I picked this story. And so this story is obviously like pretty heartbreaking, but I feel like there's still some hope. Um, At the end, there's some hope for the protagonist finding herself. There's hope that Gilda's sister is okay. Um, I don't think so. She got her ears cut off. Well, Gilda did, but Gilda's sister, like Gilda went went away to see. All right, hold up. If If she got her ears cut off, then I can only imagine what happened to her sister. Well, her sister, she wanted to make sure that her sister was, like, getting fed and stuff. Hmm. She got her ears cut off because she was a prostitute. She was a whore. Yeah. Which is the correct term to use, people, because that's what she's called in the story. True. So don't don't get all uppity on me about this. That's that's what she was. Yeah, and the other... Oh, go Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Uh, The other, like, this is a bit of a stretch, so obviously Gilda was pretty um like devastatingly injured at the end but um i'm going to talk about this a little bit later i feel like daniel draws a lot of connection between the body and the land like between the body and earth and so i'm kind of i'm kind of hopeful that uh you know since the land recovers at the end the land had such a dry spell and they couldn't grow any grapes or whatever i feel like maybe there's a chance that gilda comes back and recovers from her but she leaves yeah, she leaves. Oh, that's okay. true. 
Oh, like, you mean it just, like, comes back in, like, a general sense of, like, coming back? Like, as in, like, makes it through? Yeah, just as in, like, recovers oh. from her injuries and, like, has a happy life. Got it, got it, got it. Um, okay. Yeah, and I, I one more quick thing, and we'll we'll get into more stuff in a minute, but um, I know Colleen hasn't gotten a chance to listen to the recording yet, but... Um, I thought that Daniel did a really good job of reading the dialogue in a way that makes you feel everything going on in the story. So this is an example of like, you know, as it was written, it was good. But as it was um, recorded, I think it was even better based on like his inflections and just the emotion that he put into reading it. All Um, right. Well, I will take that for now because this was my gripe. And Daniel, don't take this the wrong way. But I, I expressed this to Jim earlier, and this is just kind of, you know, my, my thoughts on, on you know, I, I have, I struggle with men writers, male writers in general, writing about female characters in the depth that he does. Like, I think that male males are obviously capable of writing about female characters, just as females are capable of writing about male characters, but he is, you know, embodying a female character in a way so much as to like really describe what's going on with her body and like what's and like what she's going through and it like it comes off to me at first that like I you know my first I guess my first reaction and I said this to Jim and it's kind of a little bit out there to say but like it's like when you are female and you go to see the gynecologist and it's a guy it's like okay how do you know anything about being a female you're a guy like you don't know what's going on with my business and whatnot I mean, granted, he does. The man went to school for a very long time and and definitely has a degree that's capable of of treating anything. But, you know, it's it's the principle of it. It's like how and, you know, educate me, people. Tell me how you do it, because I don't write fiction that often. And maybe I just I'm not good at it. So I, I don't know. I struggle trying to embody another character that I don't know a lot about. Like, I don't feel comfortable writing as a male voice because I don't know what it's like to be a guy. I don't know. I I can have like a. Yeah, but I feel my voice would not be as authentic if I as if I tried to write about a guy because I am not a guy. I am a girl. So, you know, and you know, Jim, I Jim raised back to me was like, well, you know, like I think he does a good job. You have to hear him. Let's read it. Blah blah blah. And that's again, we come to another depot of where this is working out. All of this is working out in our favor, in that we get to actually hear the the meaning and the the you know the feeling that these writers have put into their work like you know flat on the page it does it maybe it's kind of sounds like daniel you know it's just like you know flagrantly just being like i think this is what's like to be a woman who's like pretending to be a man who has a lesbian experience who was a prostitute like you know but from what it sounds like and i will listen to this when all of you do actually um i think from what Jim says, that Daniel does does um, his character justice, and that's a good thing. Did you relate at all to her explanation for why she chose, like, why why the protagonist, why our unnamed narrator chose to pre- like pretend to be a man while she was a grape picker? Was it did, wasn't it because that they didn't have any female grape pickers? No, I think they did, but she. So in the original, because she didn't want people like taking her for her body, right? That and yeah, I think that was that was mostly, and it was just like the look that men would give her and how she felt very much accepted by 
by men and she wanted to kind of know what that felt like to mm-hmm. kind of feel valid. I found valid. that part very interesting of the story because, and that's what started, because all the, and maybe I, you're right, probably right, I got hung up on all the sexual stuff and I shouldn't have, but um, what the part of the story I did like was when he was talking about, he did make those assertions about, you know, her realizing that like, wow, when I'm a guy, like nobody gives me this, like they shake my hand, they do this, like, you know, they respect me and like she would make, made those realizations, which, a sad b you know um but like th- it was nice for some for for a man to air those kinds of of grievances that you know honestly we still deal with on a regular basis yeah as, as females i i thought it was interesting like i thought the setting was very interesting it being you know from the 1600s or whenever the advent of the lutheran mm-hmm. church yeah. i didn't i don't really know like what to say about it but that kind of connection that like bringing that forward to today um, I mean, it's definitely still relevant, so that's something. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think it's it's it was an interesting way to go. So in the original version of the story, I don't know if you remember this, but there wasn't really any explanation for why our narrator was, um, you know, dressing or pretending to be a man. Right. And so I asked Daniel about that and kind of asked him to put some sort of explanation in there because, you know, it's like pretending to be a man cross-dressing all that stuff is fine but mm-hmm. it kind of doesn't really give the reader any up. yeah because there's, no, there's there's no the context I yeah think there's no the insight into have, the character yeah what this story could have benefited from and i apologize daniel if i didn't put this in any edits that i sent um you know just some backstory like maybe if it even had started with her leaving where she was because it kind of just opens up with her there you know? right and so. honestly the first version kind of did but it didn't really to me there was really no context for the the introductory part like there was no context for the background so like i'm pretty sure she was still pretending to be a man at this point she was in the military or something and she like had either just deserted or just resigned or something she had just left for whatever reason and then she showed up at the doorstep of the winemakers but to me there wasn't like that didn't add anything to the story because we didn't know why she was in the military we didn't know why she was leaving we just didn't know anything about that i mean maybe that i don't know now going back of course like maybe that would have i mean you don't have to know why that much i think it's just you know that she was there like a military you know obviously wasn't accepting of her or so she would have stayed you know yeah that's true i don't know daniel did we screw you up (laughs) probably i hope hope to god not Uh, well i was just gonna say that he did some really clever things that i didn't mm-hmm. pick up on the first two or three times that I read the story. Honestly, I like made it a point to edit the recording of the story before we recorded this because I found that most of the time, like the past couple episodes, I have edited the recordings afterwards. And I think of so many more things to say. I come up with more connections and stuff just from listening to the story and really taking the time. So I made, made sure to do that this time. And one of the things that I noticed that I kind of alluded to before um this is like very literary but i think that he did Uh that it was the kind of earth body connection so um i came up with a couple examples of how he used that so um i thought the lead into our like kind of what introduced us to the protagonist having um body like identity like having that be a thing um was her inability to distinguish the sexes among the grapevines. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, that was like I wrote that down. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's 
that's a good, I like that. That was a really good line. I was yeah. like, oh, that's, that was good. Look. Yeah. So the, the second kind of point I wanted to make related to that was that she, the protagonist took to grape crushing and dancing on the grapes so quickly. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that was because like at that level, all the grapes are the same. She doesn't have to worry about the sexes of the vines anymore. It's just kind of all mixing together. Um, or could it be the stomping of the patriarchy? Whoa. Hey-o. Could be Anytime that, too. I can mention the word patriarchy makes me happy. Yeah. Could have been that, um, too. Yeah, I, and I like, but I like yours is more poetic. I like it better. I also thought that um, she could also be, it could be like a control thing. So she's having trouble like controlling her image or like the world around her because everybody's viewing her, mm-hmm. you know, as like yeah, subordinate oh, because I, she's I a woman. Yeah, I definitely it's a control thing. Oh yeah, for and sure. And she just gets I'm, to I'm like, on board with that. yeah, she just gets to like wreck shit on these grapes. And Hell awesome. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, stop all over it. Mm-hmm. Fuck that guy. Fuck all. Fuck all those people who like all those guys who tried to say they owned her. Like, stop all over them for sure. Yeah. I and love it. the last body Earth connection that I have, and this one was a little bit more obvious, but. Um, he talks about the three-year drought that they have and, you know, they're not growing any grapes, they're not making any wine, and there's also a widespread sadness and there's no weddings and there are no children. And so right. um, that was that was a little bit more, like, blatant. Like, yeah, the land's not doing anything and we're not doing anything. And neither are we, yeah. yeah. Um, he definitely, I mean, I, I'm sure you picked up on this, but he definitely played a lot into Greek mythology. I mean, he mentions Dionysus. Mm-hmm. And Dionysus is the god of wine. He's mm-hmm. god of fertility. He also, I was reading this today because I looked it up because I, I, always interested when people bring up Greek mythology and stories because um, it generally means something. Um, Dionysus also was often represented as a very feminine-looking male. Interesting. In a lot of the yeah, so that kind of I'm sure he probably did that on purpose. So I thought his comment about how I think the narrator said that she find found acceptance in small communities more than big cities. Oh, I, I noted that too, but I didn't have anything intelligent to say about it. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I didn't either. Cause I thought that it could work both ways. Like in a big city, you could blend in and everybody's like, Oh, there's so many people here who cares what, like what you do, who you are. Mm-hmm. But then in the small communities, like once you get to know somebody really well, you'll accept them no matter what in that kind of, True. so like, I, I don't know. I can, I can see that going both ways. Um, <sighs> Yeah, so I think that'll that'll do it for this episode. Um, so yeah, next week we're hoping to run another story relating to kind of body identity um, themes, and uh, we just want to thank Daniel again for submitting his story and for reading yes, it so Daniel, well. Thank you, thank you, Daniel. Uh, I want to thank Colleen for hosting with me and doing this for another week. Um, you you're, you don't actually mean that because you just basically are like, why am I? Did I allow this? Yeah. Um, I also want to thank Chloe Mixovic because she's been providing a ton of editorial help on these things. I don't know if you've been listening to these, Kyle, but she's been editing. Chloe rules. Yeah, she's been. Chloe should be doing this, not me. Well, no, she's been taking our like BS and kind of taking that out and telling and me when like, to. Tell Chloe to shut the fuck up. Yeah, she's and like, just don't do this anymore. You guys aren't as funny as you think you are. Just like take, <laughs> just leave all the stuff about the story in there and take everything else out. So I always I try to sneak that. stuff in there and she always calls me out on it. So thanks, Chloe. She's for... like, no, these are your stupid inside jokes that nobody understands. Basically. Yeah. So thanks, Chloe, thanks. for listening to these and, and helping us out. Thanks for Chloe for keeping us grounded. Yeah. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. We've been getting a little bit, a few more listens lately. So hope everybody's spreading the word about us and rating us on iTunes. Hint, hint. You should do that. 
maybe they actually think we're funny. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's all I got. All right, so we'll see everybody next week. Hello, everyone. See ya.